The following is a part of the Radio Memphis On Demand service. It originally aired live on Radio Memphis and has been edited for time. You got some blues. You need to move. Just head on down Memphis Way. DJ Rick. He'll fix you up right quick. Take all your troubles away Radio Memphis 8 p.m. Central Every Sunday Tune in, man of the hour here on this Sunday. It's 8 p.m. Central. It's the 30th of January. We're here for the booze and the blues. Hello, Natalie. Hey, Rick. How you doing, honey? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Did you have a good weekend? Did you go go some places, do some things? I had a really good weekend. I went, um, last night, I went to Ernestine and Hazel's to hear Yubu and the Ancient Youth. That's a fun act. And The reggae and the blues. Ah, what a, uh, just a, uh, a lot of people there Fun crowd, lots of dancing, just a good time. A burger and, and a beer, and away you go. Oh yeah, you, you know you got to do the soul burger. Oh God, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then you know we had to go upstairs to see Nate at Nate's bar. Yes. And and Nate Look for has ghosts, Nate has been there thirty years. He was saying as of March seventeenth. Oh wow. He has been there thirty years, and wow. yeah, I didn't see any. Didn't see any ghosts. No ghosts. But, oh, we got a hell of a run. We tried. Well, there you go. You got it. Sometimes they, they the ghosts get a little shy when there's a lot of people there. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, for anybody that's not been to E and H, a lot of fun. It's changed hands, but they're keeping it the same. They didn't change really anything. In oh no, I don't think. In, I mean, from from the looks of it. It still has the funk that I don't had think always been there. Anything's changed since the 1800s. Well, probably, probably so. You know, probably that's the way it is. Uh, that's that's kind of how that how that is. Well, that's cool that you you know you get to be a little bit of a tourist. Yes. Yes. Sometimes well, it's you know, kind of cool to be a tourist in your. I had a girlfriend in from Mississippi, and yeah, so yeah. Um, she was the tourist, and so yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. It's okay to be your own tourist in your own city too. Mm-hmm. You never know what's in the city until you get in there and go, you know, screw around with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is that. We got a we got a hell of a show tonight. Um, we have our old friend Jimmy Crosswaite going to mm-hmm. be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy's delightful. Um, he's, uh, of course, uh, you know, really pretty much the only guy left from Mudboy and the Neutrons. Right. And I have been uh, uh, presented with. Bits of music and sound and stuff that just you can't find anywhere. I know. I'm excited to hear this. And we're going to be laying it out there on the air for for you kids this evening. So uh, that'll be that'll be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so some stories and all of the history that uh, that goes with Jimmy and uh, uh, all the all the you know just a, just a great old time. So we uh, we hope that you kids that are listening uh, stick around and uh, we're going to get into it here fairly soon and enjoy the ride as we do. Mm-hmm. As we do down here. A little bit later on, uh, Mark will be uh, on the air. He'll join us with the latest from the uh, Memphis Blues Society and all the all the, uh, all the the latest, all the news that's uh, fit to print and to talk about. Quite a few things that are happening. Always a bunch of things. And I meant to tell you about the tip jar over here. I think there's like 40 or 50 bucks over here. 
That's supposed. That's for feed the blues. I've never said what that was for, but it, it's it's grown. There's a there's a few bucks in there. There's some awesome. fives in there. Awesome. There is. I will tell you. There is what looks like a hundred dollar bill in it, but it's not. It's a gag bill. It's a fake. It's a fake. Yeah, sure. They see it and they go, oh, shit, there's $100. You know, they, we're going to add to it. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of what that is. So we've been inviting, because a lot of people do come down here, and they like, you know, how can I get involved? Yeah, exactly. Throw a fiver in there. Throw a tenner in there. You know, uh-huh. let's do something. Let's help feed these kids. <laughs> it all helps. So, uh, so yeah, Jimmy's here, and uh, we've got some uh, some stuff in the library we'll get to here before uh, before Jimmy comes on. And we got some really uh, interesting nuggets of audio to play for you, for, for everybody tonight. So, so stick around. Enjoy the fun. We'll get back into the tunes here uh, for a minute while we get set up. Uh, this is uh, this is cool. Here in just a minute, I've got uh, Bluff City Backsliders with Hangman in a moment. Uh, got Benny Turner and Cash McCall. All right. I think th- it has been. Has it been five years? Not yet. Not mm, almost. Not yet. Yeah, okay. but we're close. I know. Uh, I was thinking about Cash the other day, and I wanted to play some stuff. Um, because uh, you know, Cash had been down here many times. You know, like five, six, seven times. You know, plus a couple times with uh, Butch. With Butch, I know him and Butch were tied. Butch and I were talking about this the other day, and uh, uh, I know he and uh, Cash were very close. And you know, there was well, something popped up on my phone. Maybe it was the benefit that we did for him five years ago. I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, some uh, some cool stuff there. And I was thinking about Cash and how much fun we had about it. And I thought, well, let's just play some. So let's get into it uh, from that last album. It's a man down there is what it is. And here it is right here on the Booze and Blues at Radio Memphis. Yeah. 
Memphis. Oh, hangman, oh, hangman, slack the rope a while. I think I see my father coming, riding many a mile. Hey, father, did you bring me silver? Father, did you bring me gold? What have you brought to keep me from a gallows pole? He said, son. Man, sack the dope for a while. 
run by professionals. Don't try this at home. We already did. Now look at us. We are Radio Memphis.
Spud Goodman. I sort of host a radio show, so join me, if you would, for the Spud Goodman Show, Wednesday nights at 10 Central on Radio Memphis. The biggest and best alternative smoke and gift shop in Memphis is Wizards. Wizards has deals throughout the store right now with savings up to 50% smoking accessories, vaporizers, woodwick candles, hats, and T-shirts. Did somebody say Delta 10? Fantasy figurines, personal cleansers, and so much more. New merchandise all the time. 1999 Madison Avenue in Midtown opens seven days a week, 10 to 10. Online at wizardsmemphis.com. Get to the world-famous Wizards, because it's still smoking. Must be 18 or over to buy smoking-related material. Dish TV is better than cable TV. Why? Because you can save 45% on packages compared to your high-priced cable bill. Wow. Take those giant scissors out and cut the cable and save with Dish TV. Plus, you get a free DVR upgrade to record your favorite shows and free installation. And with Dish Anywhere, you can watch TV for free on your mobile device. Act fast. You can save hundreds of dollars. Does your cable company do that for you? I don't think so. Get all the best TV programming at your fingertips at a fraction of the price of cable TV. So say adios, arrivederci, goodbye to the high cable bill, and save up to 45% on Dish TV packages today. These are limited time offers and can change at any time. Call fast. 800-471-0253. 800-471-0253. 800-471-0253. That's 800 471 Social distancing slows the spread of coronavirus, so stay a minimum of six feet away from others and stay home if you can. More info at coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Radio Memphis. Right on. Uh, Here on this Sunday, it's the uh, 30th of January. It's always a fun time down here in the Booze and Blues, as we do each and every Sunday. Been doing it for uh, nine years now, which is... uh, (laughs) That's a head shaker <laughs> in and of itself. Wow, nine years. What have we done? Uh, we're still doing it. That's a cool thing. And uh, nights like this are uh, are very special to me because uh, we get a chance to spend some time with uh, uh, some of my personal favorite people. And tonight it is Mr. Jimmy Crossway. Jimmy, thank you so much for popping in. Uh, it's, oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, the last time we met. It was in and around the holidays, pre-pandemic, and you had um, you had fish for sale in the trunk of your car. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They were they were sculpture pieces, and um, I got one from you, and I gave it to my wife for 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 Christmas. And uh, it's it's uh, it's it's in a place in our home, and I look at it and I think of you every time I see it. Oh, great. And it's, you're a wonderful artist. Those are my mud guppies. Your mud guppies. Yes, I love them. And I was joking with you about it up in the parking lot. I said, you know, because have, they have holes in them. It's like, well, you can almost, like, make a musical instrument. And there in the parking lot, you were trying to blow through it and, <laughs> and, make, a, yeah. and make a thing out of it. And there it was. Yeah. Sometimes they whistle better. Some whistle better than others. Yeah. They weren't designed to be musical instruments, but they are uh, they're beautiful pieces. And, uh, and I appreciate having, oh, and having one in my home. I enjoy doing these, uh, although I must say I about pretty much uh, that that'll now be part of a limited edition. I haven't made any more fish since that time. Oh, um, well, please don't make any more. I may have to sell it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, think I, and if I die, it'll be at least worth twice as much. That yeah, maybe so. <laughs> there, there we go. But no, thank you for coming in tonight. It's a, it's a thrill to have you here because of your, uh, of course, your obvious connection with uh, Mudboy and the Neutrons, uh, which is a story in and of itself. By God, there's 
There's a dozen hours right there. Well, yeah, and actually tonight I do want to share with you um, some people that I've been in my life really fortunate to have have known and and some I've uh, worked with, and I uh, am really grateful, and I wanted to kind of share tonight some of these people and some of their stories yeah um, yeah because they're they're really kind of special well they're important you know they every i've always treated the music scene here in the city across all of the the years as uh, so much importance and for you to have been a part of that must be very special in your mind well, as a matter of fact, I uh, sat down and kind of started making a list of different musicians I have uh, played with over the years. Yeah. Uh, besides the the Mud Boys, and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of uh, just give a a call out to all of these. Oh, sure, it's please a do. Fairly long list. I'm kind of reminded of. Um, that scene in uh, the the sh- the film of uh, about Andy Kaufman, where oh man in the moon, he, yeah. well, and he was booked into a college audience, uh, and they were expecting him to do his Latka character and play the conga drums and stuff, mm-hmm. but instead he comes out with a book, and he opens the book and says. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> yes. Get comfortable because this could take a while. <laughs> so, my list of musicians I've been lucky enough to know and at times work with. Jim Spake, Amy LeVere, Luke White, George Slepik, Ron Easley, David Kowser, Paul Taylor, John Stubblefield. <clears throat> Coon Elder, Brenda Patterson, Sam Shoup, Jimbo Mathis, Kenny Brown, Joe Gaston, Charlie Freeman, Terry Johnson, Jimmy Sigerson, Wayne Jackson, Travis Womack, Brandy Parks, Fred Ford, Sleepy John Estes and Hammy Nixon, Larry Raspberry, Jimmy Newman, Don McGregor, Busta Jones, Al Gamble, Nancy Jeffries, Bill Barth, Bob Palmer, Zeke Johnson, Furry Lewis, Teeny Hodges, Tommy Burroughs, Jimmy Davis, Booker White, Chris Chew, Reba Russell, Susan Marshall, Tommy Burke, Dane Layton, Shannon McNally, Charday Thomas, Swain Schaefer, Gimmer Nicholson, Jim and Jill Lancaster, and of course, Mudboy and the Neutrons, Jim Dickinson, Sid Selvage, Lee Baker, and myself, and their sons, Luther and Cody Dickinson, Steve Selvage, and Ben Baker, together with yours truly, the sons of Mudboy. Um... That just lets people know that Memphis has more musicians than butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, doctors, and lawyers, and Indian chiefs all put together. Wow, what a list. That's (laughs) very impressive. um, Since we were talking about the Sons of Mud Boy, the the Sons of Mud Boy first... uh, uh, 
grouped together as as uh, under that name three days after Jim Dickinson had passed away. Really? Yeah, it was and that fast. Yeah, I, f- yeah, I forget about Luther that. Luther yeah. called us all down to the Zebra Ranch down in Mississippi where the uh, Dickinsons lived, and they had the recording studio. And uh, we did uh, the uh, little CD called Onward and Upward uh, under the name... Luther Dickinson and the Sons of Mud Boy. So you guys recorded right away. We recorded it all, almost one take, each cut, and um, with just one microphone. Wow. Maybe there were two, but I think it was mostly just one, and we circled uh, around that microphone, and that uh, included... um, Shannon McNally and Jimbo Mathis and Paul Taylor and Steve Selvage, Luther Dickinson, myself, and Sid was still alive. And this is and that was three, the first sons of Three days life. after his passing, right? Uh-huh. What year was that? Oh, gosh. It was, I think, 2010. Wow. Um, so this is before his funeral then. Yeah. He actually, his funeral was sort of a private Affair, right, right, right. Uh, just really immediate family, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a great cut on this uh, called Angel Band. If you could find that, it would be great to. I I have it right here. Well, okay, let's, wow. let's listen to that. Yeah. Well, let's, well, let's do. do that. Let's jump right into it and uh, and hear uh, um, Luther Dickinson and the Sons of Mud Boy Angel Band right here at Radio Memphis. You know, as you described a rather crude recording, that was beautiful. 
sure was. <laughs> you know, for just a yeah. mic or two and just to make that make that happen, that's wonderful. Yeah, and like I said, in one take, I mean, most everything, I don't think we did two takes on maybe maybe one song we, we did twice. Well, everybody's are, these are all consummate musicians, though. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, and there's the spirit of everything that was, that was so heavy on all of that. Yeah. And, of course, Sid has just about the most beautiful voice. Uh, and it was good to have, though, Shannon McNally as a, another female mm-hmm. yeah. uh, element in, in that. Um, and this that uh, CD was nominated for a Grammy. Yes. Was it really? Yes, it was. Yeah. I remember that, yes. Um, we didn't win, but... Being nominated is an honor. Oh yes, absolutely. Say. I think it's, in some there, cases it's almost better than than actually winning it. <laughs> yeah. Was there a sense in the room of Jim? Was there a presence? You think that he was with you guys during that recording? Well, it's hard to say. You know, what we were really doing is uh, uh, singing him into heaven is sort of the notion. Oh wow! And uh, uh, that's happened. Uh, well, with Jim, um, and before Jim, uh, Lee Baker had passed away. Yeah. And we uh, did uh, a little, well, Sid and Jim and I did a little uh, singing at the church uh, for his service. And Sid did a wonderful rendition of He Was a Friend of Mine for Lee Baker. But uh, in a way, the most memorable uh, kind of uh, memorial to a fallen comrade or Mm -hmm. uh, a fellow musician Mm -hmm. was done for uh, Charlie Freeman, gosh, many, many, many years ago. This was before Mudboy had ever... Uh, you know, uh, became a thing. Yeah. But was ever born. Uh, but Jim Dickinson was playing at uh, the funeral for Charlie Freeman, and I knew he was kind of back behind this lattice work that had flowers all over it, mm-hmm. and he was doing a couple of instrumentals on the piano, which I thought were were uh, really nice. But then about the third song, you hear Jim's voice singing, When Jesus Calls, you got to move. And boy, that just oh, wow. really was a tearjerker. Oh, it just that. rips your heart yeah, out thinking yeah, really about it. Did. Oh, my God. Uh, but that was truly one of the... I don't know that uh, any musician has, you know, given a send-off to a fellow um, musician. Well, well, that I'm, equals that. Well, I'm thinking about this. How how did you how did how did the whole neutrons thing happen? I mean, you had these musicians that they had worked in, they had their fingers in everybody's pies. It seemed and they were writing their own stuff, and it was just they were architects of a Memphis sound. Well, Charlie Freeman, you know, played with the original Marquis. Yes, and Don Nix and uh, Terry Johnson was drumming. Um, 
and Charlie would have been the main lead guitar player for my boy in the Neutrons, but he died on the road uh, somewhere in Texas, I guess. Um, and Lee Baker kind of took that slot. Yeah. Um, which was really fortunate for all of us. Um, Charlie and I were fishing buddies, and uh, uh, <laughs> Charlie was, uh, oh, I don't, he was like a drunk Indian. <laughs> and, That's okay, uh, <laughs> I, I get it, yeah. Uh. And he had like, a, I don't know, a 58 Chevy or something. And where it invariably, we would go uh, stop at a bait shop or something and get ready to, to go fishing. And he would open up his trunk and either fumble around with his uh, uh, tackle box. And then... <laughs> Almost without exception, he would shut the trunk with the keys in it. Oh, no. <laughs> and and the, the beauty, though, of that time is that a 58 Chevy or any Chevy, the trunk could be opened with the key of any other GM car oh, or wow. whatever. So we would just wait for someone to pull into the bait shop. That's hilarious. I know, right? And Charlie would say, can I use your trunk key a minute? And pull his keys out. That's hilarious. And Oddly enough, after Charlie passed, Lee Baker became my fishing buddy. He was living yeah. over at Horseshoe Lake, mm -hmm. and uh, we would go fishing there. <laughs> and one time, I uh, I may have told y'all this story before. I had uh, kind of uh, uh, fallen down in my my personal hygiene <laughs> it happens and, it happens and uh at one point baker was saying crossways you really need a bath and so they kind of threw me into the lake and threw a bar <laughs> of soap at me and you so old I hippie took the you. soap and i washed up and i got out and baker said Damn, Crossweight, you left the ring around it. Left <laughs> the ring around the lake. <laughs> that bad, huh? Oh, uh, those were good times over yeah. at Horseshoe. What what year was that? Do you think that would have been probably the early seventies, maybe. Uh, yeah, probably 71, 72, and then all the, Boy began a little after that. All the mm. innocence of the early 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out of the out of the summer love of 69 into all yeah. of this. and Well, actually, uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking back on uh, when I was about 15 and 16, there were a group of friends of mine that were a little older than I. And uh, we would go over to the Engineer's Beach uh, across the river, just across the river, where the Corps of Engineers has a building. Right. Um, and when the river had flooded and then receded, there were these big pockets of mud back not right on the bank of the 
the massive current. But just uh, inland a little bit, it, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, we would go and just strip down to our underwear and run and jump and dive into these pools of mud and you know, <laughs> took our heads out and scraped the mud <laughs> off our eyes. Good and Lord. And sort of lay there like a big bowl of jelly. Like big it undulate. <laughs> and uh, a couple of times, this was while the Memphis Queen was making trips across right. to the beach. And the uh, Memphis Queen would pull up, and we would make up uh, skirts out of willow branches and put the mud <laughs> across our chest and our face and carry sticks oh, and go out God. to the beach to meet the Memphis Queen. Oh, my God. That, that might have been the actual original mud boy. That's but, crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I spent a summer when I was 16 living in a little sharecropper house over in the soybean fields uh, yeah. that summer next to uh, a poet named Kenneth Bodwin. He was uh, for a time the poet laureate of Memphis. And he had his own little poetry society and he would give different gemstones <clears throat> to the different poets. And uh, in fact, that actually makes a segue into uh, a person that I would like to share with you named Harvey Goldner. He is a poet. He passed away in 2007, but he went to East High School, as I did, and I have his book here called The Resurrection of Burt Ringgold. And I'd like to read just a little bit oh, absolutely. about yeah. uh, Harvey, uh, beginning with uh, the fellow named Bobby Bird, who also went to East High and published uh, this book. Hmm. Was it, so was he a longtime Memphian, or did he did he move off? Or uh, Harvey wrote for pretty much all his life. Um, it, let me just read quickly. Oh, okay. no, no, take your time. Take your time. Uh, Bobby Bird uh, says, Harvey Goldner, 1942 to 2007, known in Seattle as the Bard of Belltown, died early the morning of July 4th, 2007. In May, he went into the hospital to have a tumor removed from his tongue. The surgery and illness took a great toll on Harvey, and he wasn't able to recover. You never heard of Harvey Goldner? Why should you? Harvey was a poet neglectorino <laughs> in the classic sense, more comfortable with his outsider artists and poet friends than he was with the results of creative writing programs in academia. His poems rise up ghostly clouds, mocking, bitter, surreal, out of this stupid republicanized America. Lucky for us, he grew up in Memphis and remembered the 1950s, Memphis dreams that Little Richard, Gandhi, Jimmy Walker, and Elvis promised us all. The imagined mythos of his growing up became the river of his poetry and rainy Seattle the surreal memories of his alcoholism 
He was a recovering alcoholic who frequented downtown backstreet AA meetings. The people on the streets, his friends, the women he loved and fought with, and the revelation of his children and grandchildren, all these became major tributaries to that river. Wow. <laughs> and uh, here is a little interview that a fellow named Tom Snyder, who wrote for the Duck of Bush Journal, <laughs> had with Harvey. Um, and he begins, anyone who has heard Harvey Goldner read knows he is one of the most uniquely lyrical and visionary poets in the Seattle area. And then Harvey adds to that. He lives in the only cockroach-infested slum building still standing amid the pastel condos of booming poodle-infested bell town. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> poodle-infested. <laughs> I hate poodles. Then Snyder says, uh, Your poetry is obviously non-academic in style. Do you identify with any literary groups, the Beats, Mavericks, Outlaw Poets, etc.? What are your literary influences? And Harvey says, Right now I'm reading Pope's The Rape of the Lock, a translation of the Holy Quran, Gurdjieff's Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, a stack of old National Geographic magazines, <laughs> and a short story called Coincidentally Rape by my good friend Lorraine Campbell. I've always read everything. Then Snyder asks, did you always have an interest in writing? And Harvey says, I began writing at East High School in Memphis. I didn't have a car or lots of spending money, so my first choice of groups was out. I was too slow for sports, so that was out too. Thus I joined the herd of maverick poets and artists. My only problem was that my brain was totally empty and so I had nothing to write about. Then I discovered John Cage and Jackson McClough and learned that it is possible for one to write long, profound poems even if one has small talent and less life experience. All one needs is a bunch of text, a pair of scissors, a pair of dice, and a devious <laughs> and deceptive mind. Uh, just when I was about to become world famous, I had a spiritual experience. Quit writing and devoted myself wholeheartedly to drinking. Twenty years <laughs> later, I quit drinking and started writing again. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and then he says, um, the, Tom Snyder asks, some writers are inspired by nature, but the landscape of your poems seem primarily urban. Is this a deliberate choice by you or simply a reflection of where you hang out? Harvey says, I'm as fond of clams, kelp, crabs, and cormorants as the next Northwest poet or ecotourist, but it's been several million years since my heart has truly throbbed to the rhythms of a tide pool. See Darwin. For the past 3,000 years or so, I've lived in the city, 
Babylon, Rome, Belltown. So naturally, that's what I write about. However, however, lately, I've been writing about Mars, which is neither urban nor rural, but something else. Something like a square dance, but cubed. Rubies dancing with emeralds, while Neil Ellis plays a diamond fiddle using a bow formed of tiny pink fornicating rabbits. (laughs) 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 And (laughs) to add to, to that, I have a poem written by Neil Ellis. Neil and Harvey, myself, Kenneth Bodwin, the man over on the river, all uh, hung together in Memphis at one point. Uh, in fact, this is a letter from, from Harvey to me, but first I want to read Neil Ellis's poem called The Motley Fool. Neil was looked up to by almost all the other poets in town. The Motley Fool. When he was young, he cried not in the night nor in the day. He cried not in the earth, and none could say that he was ever old, and none could swear his birth. And how he came and went could not be said, for neither man nor rainbow knew his ways and neither star nor void could meter him, and neither sage nor seer could lay his days out in the line. But he came wandering here like a soft flowing that would never end. With quick and utter grace he would move on, and none could say that they had been his friend, and none could say they had accounts against him. He was a motley fool, Some say he grinned, yet others say he had no such expression any more than does the passing wind. He was the grace of days, he moved in music, and color was the cloth that veiled his birth, and primal breath had made him in its form, and magic life had loaned him to the earth. He was the motley fool whose fables will not end. Wow. Neil Ellis. And that's why everybody likes Neil. Um, sometime a little later, I uh, was making some necklaces out of uh, pennies that I would put on railroad tracks and let the train flatten drive them out. over yeah, them and yeah. flatten them. And I would put little holes in them and connect them with other little beads and things to make these necklaces and I sent one to Harvey uh, in Seattle the beauty of my uh, relationship with Harvey was uh, that in the good old bad old days I would be staying up late at night <laughs> and Harvey lived in Seattle so I at two in the morning could call Harvey and it was only just midnight. There. Sure, yeah. So he was still up and writing and he would take my calls and I would talk to him and then he would write me letters back <laughs> in reply. So anyway, he wrote me this letter after I'd sent him a necklace. Dear to Jim, That was very clever of you to use the steel of the railroad train to erase the face of Abraham Lincoln, to erase the date. 
the number of years since the birth of Christ, to erase that jive Roman building, to erase the United States of America, <laughs> to erase the Roman Empire and the murdering and muttering Catholic and Protestant churches, to erase all that dubious progress. Very clever of you to use that train to flatten those pennies into primitive disks of primal copper metal and string them up with moonstones and sunstones alternating day stones and then night stones, 17, 17, and 1 and 7 is 8, most mystical number. Wow. It's a beautiful necklace, Jimmy. I can smell the river in it. It must have been done not far from the Harahan Bridge. Anyway, I'm doing something similar myself, but not all at once. Ten years at a time. Right now, I'm back in the 60s, taking the best and leaving the rest. Next month, it's back to the 50s. I think I'll erase J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> Joseph McCarthy, and that sleazeball con, cone. And after that, it's the 40s. I'm going to keep most of that, except I'm going to erase the Second World War. I'll move it back to the 30s to liven things up a bit. But it will be much shorter in the 30s. What I think I'm trying to do is get back to horses, maybe even camels, but slowly, not all at once. Wouldn't want to erase the baby along with the bathwater. No, don't want to throw out the baby Jesus. We'll have him stay in Egypt this time, maybe Memphis or Cairo, like the syrup. Not Cairo, the Cairo. Keep Jesus in Egypt and the circus in Rome, not get them mixed up this time. Anyway, thanks for the necklace. I'm going to wear it to the totem pole meeting Saturday. Tell them ten little Indians it's from a buddy of mine who's a Chickasaw Indian, Memphis tribe, apprentice medicine man. Love, Harvey. Nice. What a funny fucking guy. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's hilarious. It was great. And uh, to finish, let me just read the poem they include on the back of, of the book. This is called Lunch and Love at the Bardo. Sitting at the outdoor bar and grill of the Bardo Hotel halfway down Baja, California, eating chicken enchiladas, we gaze. Our eyes gaze out over the round ocean, our ancestral homestead. The vast blue turning sky and sea is on fire and very small and there's plenty of room in her little brown eyes for more than one sun, one sky, one Pacific Ocean. Each enchilada contains a stadium of hushed fans. Each enchilada contains a sellout crowd of roaring faces. We each eat two and then go for a long walk along the beach. We walk the edge until the earth turns us away from the churning blue and cuckoo clock sudden towards a deep black heaven pumping stars. Hand in hand, we barefoot back to the bardo and bed for some happy, happy boom boom. And afterwards, she says, oh, Harvey, we have everything except money. <laughs> Jimmy, I got to grab a break right here. Um, okay. Out of out of this uh, out of this break, uh, I want to play a tune or two. Um, 
what, what, what should we play here? Then we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Oh, whatever you think. Whatever I think? Yeah. You want another uh, Sons of Mud Boy thing? That'll work, or even the original Mud Boys. Or... Oh, we got it all. Um, how about... Um... How about codeine? Okay, that's a nice. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's a hell of a tune. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot happening there. Uh, we'll we'll play that. We'll come back and we'll and we'll and we'll chat some more. Okay, good deal. And th- that's uh, that's this is this is this is awesome. Uh, yeah, it's Mud Boy and the Neutrons. Jimmy Crossweight is here in the studio, kids. We'll be back with more.
Boy and the Neutrons, Radio Memphis and Codeine. Um, you know, we were uh, we were listening to some of the uh, uh, the poetry that uh, had been shared with you over the years there, uh, Jimmy. And um, it seems to me that the Beat Generation would, had a huge influence on what Mudboy and the Neutrons really was. Well, yeah. We all read Howl. I mean, yeah. Dickinson, you know. I mean, the titles of... Uh, uh, Negro Streets at Dawn was the title of one CD. Yes, and, yes. Uh, that, of course, is from the, the opening of Howl. I've seen the best minds of my generation starving, hysterical, naked, running through the Negro Streets at Dawn looking for an angry fix, said Allen Ginsberg, said he. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I guess we all... Red Ginsburg and Lawrence Berlin Getty and there it, was a great there was that Northern California thing I guess for the most part in Los Angeles as well Southern California but you know here it was in Memphis with the you know um, Martin Luther King business and the civil rights that was being pushed and you guys were right in the thick of this oh yeah yeah in fact Jim and I went to Memphis State. And uh, the cafeteria there at uh, Memphis State, which is now the University of Memphis, uh, was more or less segregated. There was a black side and a white side. Right. Jim and I would sit on the black side with uh, black people and got to to make some friends. And um, we were also pretty much... uh, uh, ostracized by the fraternity crowd or whatever. Oh, yeah, no great loss uh, there. I had at the time, uh, you know, shoulder-length hair or whatever. And as you walked past the fraternity houses, they would yell things like, it's a shim, <laughs> which I yeah. guess is the, the she and merging him thing. of she and him, yeah. Uh, and then the Beatles broke, and then they were yelling, Hey, Ringo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's your boots? Yeah. But in the middle of all of this, too, you weren't just into the music. You were, you were, you were, you were, you were a physical artist, too. You are a sculptor and painter. And were you doing that as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, and acting. Now, you know, Jim started a theater, the Market Theater. Yes. Uh, when I was, I guess, 17, and uh, uh, he had hootenannies there. Mm-hmm. Uh, folk and hootenannies were kind of a popular thing, so it must have been, if I was 17, it was probably 62, 63. Right. And uh, folk was kind of what was happening I think Dylan emerged with his first album about what was that 64 or 65 uh, was it Blood, uh, Blonde on Blonde or Blood on the Tracks uh, or even before that no that'd be way before that not way before not way before but close yeah it was right when he plugged in <laughs> when he when he went electric wasn't it uh, no no he this was a spoke it's folk stuff, uh, yeah. yes, yes. Back in the Arlo Guthrie. Yeah, I Guthrie mean, days. he, Dylan would go to the village and listen to a friend of ours, Luke Faust, uh, played with his wife. I can't remember her name 
at that time. And and in Dylan's first album, uh, the liner notes on the back of it, he says, I would go to the East Village or to the village and uh, listen to Luke and whatever her name was sure. uh, in, in the coffee houses there. And um, Luke later joined with the... Bill Barth and Nancy Jeffries and Bob Palmer in the group The Insect Trust. And they kind of kicked off their uh, band, The Insect Trust, at the Electric Circus in 1967. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and since we're speaking about this at the moment, I would like to kind of jump into Robert uh, Gordon's book that came from Memphis. Yes, this is the updated book too. This uh, yeah, is the, this the, is the, the new updated one. Uh, it's a great book. read. It and really the reason is. it was updated primarily is because of my ex-wife Linda who uh, had when the first book came out she wrote Robert a letter saying, hey mm -hmm. this seems like a guy kind of book what about all the wives of these people? Yes, <laughs> she, yes. My wife. Where's the and women? part of the, the um, puppetry. Plus, after she and you, I no, split you an up, she married Charlie Rattery. And before you get into that, you were an actor before this, too. You were a child actor, weren't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, because yeah. you, you you did a thing about Georgia Tan, if, if I'm yeah, saying. You right. were involved in the production of the, uh, the Black Memphis Market Baby. Children's Home and the selling of babies. Yes. All of that. Yes. Uh, was why that didn't quite pan out. Well, uh, <laughs> well that, was uh, a, that was a pretty rough moment. But we were talking about Bill Barth, Nancy Jeffries, and Bob Palmer. Yes. Now, I first saw them... In around 1964, they came through Memphis and were playing the Bitter Lemon, which yes. was John mm -hmm. McIntyre's coffee shop there mm -hmm. on Poplar. And they came from Arkansas. Bob Palmer played clarinet, but uh, they went under the name the Solop Singers, and uh, Bob later goes on to become the music critic for the New York Times and wrote for a decade with them. Yes. But in Robert Gordon's book, he talks about um, Bob Palmer's first trip to New York. And if you don't mind... Oh, please uh, do, again, yes. <laughs> get comfortable. This could take a while. <laughs> um, so, Bob Palmer, Nancy Jeffries, and Bill Barth or the Solop Singers. They, um, it, it says the Insect Trust was the second incarnation of the Solop Singers, solidifying in New York in 1967. The name comes from William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, though Palmer couldn't imagine it at the time. In four years, he would travel to Morocco with Burroughs. The two maintain a working relationship. So, uh, <clears throat> Barth, uh, this is now Bob Palmer talking. Barth set me up for the most singular introduction uh, <laughs> uh, 
Bart set me up for the most singular introduction to New York. I drove up there with this girl that I knew from Little Rock who knew a piano teacher there. We drove past Manhattan to Stony Point and got to this guy's house, and I crashed out on the couch. About 12 hours later, I woke up and I looked across this big room. It was a pretty house in the woods, and sitting across from me is John Cage. And what's even weirder about it is I knew exactly who he was and had read his stuff. We proceeded to spend the entire day together, walking around, listening to some of his music that hadn't been commercially issued. We speculated on the future of music in really interesting ways, and that was my first day in New York. Then I went down to Manhattan, and I had one contact that Barth had given me, Peter Stamfeld of the Holy Modal Rounders. I went over to Stamfell's apartment, and it's a block from Bleecker and McDougal, which was like the center of the universe. I'm not there five minutes, and the Blues Magoos come in to score speed, and then we all go over to the Kettle of Fish, and Bob Dylan was in there, and Eric Anderson, Dave Van Ronk, all those guys. That was my second day in New York. Not bad. I also went to see this great Cecil Taylor concert at Town Hall, which was the music for unit structures, probably the best Cecil Taylor album ever. And I was thinking, wow, I thought it would be really difficult to get anywhere in New York, but this is great. So with some reluctance, I went back to Little Rock and finished my last year of college. The Memphis weave in New York was drawn ever tighter the summer of 1967 with the arrival of Jimmy Crosswaite, his wife Linda, and Chris Wimmer. Crosswaite was working toward merging his artistic handiwork with his natural theatricality. The problem with sculptures, he'd come to realize, was that they didn't move. In 1965, he and his girlfriend Linda followed a lead from Lydia Saltzman and got hired as a husband and wife puppeteer team. That meant getting married. Now my ex-wife is saying, I felt weird being married, says Linda. It felt so bourgeois, <laughs> a violation of internal feelings. But the man wanted a husband and wife team, and I dreamed of having a puppet show since I was a child. They trained in Florida, learning the script and puppet manipulation, then hit the road performing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in schools, venturing deep into the middle of the country. I carried my half of the 500-pound stage and set it up, set up the puppets, worked and voiced the puppets, broke everything down, loaded my half. The next year, they trained with another puppet master in Chicago, then hit the road with a new marionette performance, the circus. I loved doing the work, becoming this marionette and seeing the marionette move in ways that you hadn't anticipated creating something, continues Linda, and that was the only time in my life I've ever been paid equally. We did the same work for the same pay, and that was in the 60s. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, 
uh, we all, not we all, but well, many of us from Memphis seem to end up in New York uh, at working at the Electric Circus. And uh, Chris had come, Chris Wimmer had come to Chicago um, while I was building this this puppet show called I Am Dode. And by the way, we beat out Jim Henson, who also had his puppets. Uh, an ad was in the Village Voice saying, Hippie Puppet Show Wanted. And that's, It was just that simple. And, yeah, hippie, and, hippie Puppet Show. <laughs> and, and Lydia, Chris's ex-girlfriend, called us in Chicago and told us about the ad. We called the circus. They said, well, come to New York. Let's see what you got. We drove Chris and I from Chicago to New York in whatever it was, a day and a day and a half. I don't know. It's a hell of a ride uh, either way, well, yeah. We were smoking hash and driving a Volkswagen bus and when I got into New York I was immediately pulled over by a cop going the wrong way on a one-way street. <laughs> I opened the window of the Volkswagen bus, and I mean, hash was, smoke was just wafting out the window. And uh, he said, you know, you're going the wrong way. And I went, well, <clears throat> I didn't know that. <laughs> and he said, go on, get out of here. 67 in New York was pretty... Uh, interesting, is yeah. What yeah. Interesting, I think would be about kind of the, about the best was, you could put uh, it. Yeah. When about when Serpico was uh, <laughs> sort of <laughs> they were more. You were the least of his worries <laughs> at that really. time. Yeah, looking for the organizer. Yeah, you're not a you're not a criminal there, Jimmy. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, they put us up in uh, uh, what was like the Chelsea. Uh, hotel and uh, I guess we spent about three days for them to decide whether it would be my puppet show or Jim Henson's and they chose us I think because the show was a bit political in nature uh, it began with an immolating monk that well, burned and crumpled and puppet shows traditionally all the way back into the Middle Ages had been very political and yeah. you know violent and there was there was there was all sorts of uh, strangeness that, that was there but it was also very real and you guys were kind of doing that yeah well it was also in a way this this production was. Uh, uh, kind of performance art had not been uh, become a thing. Yet. It hadn't been refined, it, if it, you will? It hadn't been really, yeah, uh, defined as such. And that's essentially what what the show was. A series of vignettes that uh, a little review in uh, The Village Voice uh, said something to the effect of uh, Nothing clarified, but all strangely beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that, would you have done anything any different if you could go back? Uh, not really, no. Yeah, it I wouldn't think it, so. It was, uh, you know, what I kind of had envisioned. And some of the the things were, were fun, the gimmicks, the trick itself, uh, like kind of the, a Kind the of a magic act? Clown, huh? yeah, like a magic act? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I heard an interview with Adrian Brody the other uh, day with, I think he was on Stephen Colbert, and he was talking about uh, when he was young, like 12 or so, he got into magic. Uh-huh. And he said, you buy a magic trick and you've got the, the gizmo and you have a little sheet of paper that tells you how the trick works, uh-huh. you know. But it's up to you to conjure up the dialogue that would uh, the patter that yeah, would go with right, it, yeah. the patter that would go with it, and that's how he kind of learned improvisation and other sort of uh, skills that you know. You would uh, use the cues to make that, up your own that stories he used yeah. as an actor as he yeah. grew forward. Um, like the melting face clown had a, a heating element in it that you would. S- sort of like what you would start charcoal with. Uh, oh yeah, the behind the, the, the yeah, little, yeah the, the yeah. big loopy thing that <laughs> would little, plug in a loop, electric loop, <laughs> like an electric stove yeah. kind of thing. Weird, yeah. And I had it behind a skillet, which I had painted with day glow paint, uh, white, and uh, I had day glow golden chain for hair. And uh, the heating element took about, oh, a minute and a half, two minutes to heat up enough to make cheeks and a nose and eyes that were painted with a mixture of Crisco oil and Dayglow temper paint. Yeah. So that at the right time they would all begin to melt. So you had to time uh, it while you were working. Well, yeah, yeah I, I timed it and then I wrote the patter to 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 fit it yeah to make it go that amount of time and then uh, it was a poem that uh, uh, and you're voicing this at the same time right yeah and the the poem I can still remember was uh, once there was a clown named Junk who dabbled unending in bubbles of ornate invention and he lived in a field of forget-me-nots and set up business near a cloud bank and junk was numbered no thing zero the fool journeying outward yet never leaving suspended stillness in hydraulic motion approaching infinite reality face to no face like an unborn child unable to recognize its mother Meditate long and broad and deep, little man. Your spirit mounts a camel. It moves slowly out of darkness, across the white desert, through the pillars of the equinox. There you may quench your thirst and gaze upon your reflection. For after all, a clown is only a man, exaggerated perhaps, to that extent wherein he is every man. Go ahead, die laughing, and with that is face. His face. Oh, that's brilliant! Wow. Oh my God. Oh, Mr. Rogers would have had a stroke. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice, squeaky little. All collapsed and back into darkness. Oh, that's brilliant. And now. Yeah. If you don't mind, yes, that brings me to the most wonderful puppeteer that I ever 
met and encountered. Yes. And that was in Chicago when my wife and I were working with the coal marionettes and living at the time in Oak Park, um, just out the Eisenhower from downtown Chicago. Uh, the, the couple that uh, we were working for trained the man that trained me a year earlier, some 20 years before that. In other words, this man in Chicago, George Cole, trained a man named Ken Hodge 20 years before Ken Hodge trained Linda and I. Ken lived in Florida. That's where we started our puppet career. But the next year we're working in Chicago for George and Lucille Cole. And they are members of what was called the Puppeteers of America. Like a union or just a group? It's a kind of a a group. It's not really a union. Uh, But they had heard about a Japanese puppeteer. Her name was Michiko Tagawa. Michiko was born around 1925 or so. And she was in college in World War II, living in Tokyo. And all college students in Japan uh, had to do some work for the war effort. So that essentially, instead of going to college classes by 1944 or so, she was working on a munitions plant. Right. And she would walk across the burned out, burned out buildings and burned up bodies of Japanese who had been uh, hit by our firebombs the nights before. Mm -hmm. Each morning, she would go to this munitions plant to do her... To do her work, yes. Her her duty, yeah. So... uh, (laughs) That's how Michiko spent her freshman or sophomore year in college. Uh, Jesus. So, it's 1967. Oh, I should say, after the war, uh, Michiko uh, was working with a puppet company, Bunraku, is the type of puppetry. It's where... uh, uh, the puppeteers will dress in black, working against a black background, and they're sort of rod and hand puppets. And they're not marionettes with no, strings. Not with they're strings. Yeah. Uh, and it takes three people to operate one puppet. Wow! One person is <clears throat> the left hand, and that person will be the left hand for ten years. Dang. And wow. they get real good with the left hand, they get to graduate to being the right hand okay. for 10 more years. Oh, oh Jesus. Wow. After 20 years and having been both the left and right hand, they get to work the head, which would have moving eyes and The eyes and the mouth. And and yes. Like oh, there's a lot going on, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Michiko had spent 10 years being the left hand when a group of French puppeteers come through and ask 
Michiko if she would like to join them and travel the world doing puppet shows with their troupe. And she agreed. So um, it's approaching 1967, and she and the French puppeteers are traveling through South America when they have a horrible car accident in the Andes and uh, essentially she has uh, almost lost her left arm. Oh no. Uh, it's just dangling on. Uh, peasants come and sort of take the car apart <laughs> leaving yeah. her essentially to die but she doesn't die because honest to God a group of nuns come out of the mountain oh, wow. somehow oh they take Michiko to some little local doctor who was able to sort of put, put her, her back her together yeah. Yeah. kind of back together but she had no use of it but she didn't it wasn't completely fallen off and lost and so then this is when the puppeteers of America come into play. They hear of Michiko's plight and they arrange for her to come and a team of surgeons at UCLA put that arm back together to where it can work. Wow. And so the Coles, George and Lucille Cole, ask uh, uh, Michiko, if she wants to come to Chicago and they'll try to uh, book some shows. She has her own puppets by this time. Sure. Which she had made to be part of this French troupe. And I got to see her show. In fact, she stayed with Linda and I in our house in Oak Park for about three weeks, maybe a month. Uh, and, and did three or four performances in like schools like in a school gymnasium sure. or whatever and it was truly well the puppets alone were the most beautiful that I've ever seen they were almost three feet tall and she had a little forest sprite that had a head about the size of a cantaloupe and had strands of yarn for hair and at the end of each strand there was a little bell so that when she shook her head it would ding -ling, it would ring ding -ling, yeah and she had about 18 coats of what was called eggshell paint which made it just truly look like an eggshell i mean that yeah uh, it looked delicate and, and very smooth yeah, yeah but not shiny <laughs> i mean it was just immaculate and the little sprite would come and dance and shake her head and she had another like two kids under a uh, like a Chinese or Japanese dragon yes and the dragon would would come and one little kid would be the, the back half you know and the other little kid is the front and they could flip the dragon's head off and you see the little kids that are oh, wow. as beautiful as... Oh, wow. And when she was doing the sprite, she's... Now, these were marionettes. Um, and 
she would sprinkle like rose petals out as the little sprite came onto the stage. It was just beautiful and delicate and wonderful. And American <laughs> kids just... <laughs> oh, yeah, they were like, what the hell is this? Yeah. It was just mm-hmm. awful. And I kind of realized then mm-hmm. that as beautiful and immaculate and well done as this is, it was pearls before swine, honest to God. Sure, and, uh, sure. That, to do shows for American kids, you needed some kind of song and dance and slapstick and whatever. Um, <laughs> but it also was the second year I'd been doing these shows for schools, and it really made me want to build the adult show and uh, sort of leave those little... Uh, <laughs> okay, anyway... In that month of, of, by the way, she was, Michiko was probably 40, 40 something maybe in 1967, and she looked like she was 25. Oh, sure. Japanese have that ability. Yeah. yeah. Um, And she could be still alive in theory. She might possibly be. I was trying to find her, and there is a number in LA. She, at that time, though, in 67, uh, the State Department, the uh, American State Department, would not extend her visa because they considered puppetry a hobby and not a vocation. Mm-hmm. So she had really? to leave and go back to Japan. Mm-hmm. And that was, she left us probably a month or two before we go to New York. Right. You know, right. To the Electric Circus. But, I learned later that Michiko came back and did uh, special effects work for Jurassic Park, Predator, Terminator yeah. 2, really? Two, Good for and, her. Uh, yeah, and many other films. And she, I think, still possibly is still alive in L.A. That is outstanding. Yeah. What a brilliant story. Michiko Tagawa. And... Like I said, I've been really lucky in my life to have known and at times worked with some really wonderful and wonderfully talented people. And I'm really glad to share Michiko's story with the world. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> and that's stuff that, you know, is you know is with you personally, Jimmy. Uh, you know, you wind up with... Uh, well, Mud Boy and the Neutrons, and uh, there's I know there's no puppetry in there, and there's no marionette work, <laughs> but there was some brilliant music that came up, you know, yeah. through that time as well. I mean, I, that had to have informed a little bit of what you guys were doing. Yeah, and you know, I also built a ten foot puppet that I called the Ob of uh, Vulcan. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, Stedman Matthews asked me if I could make a big puppet to MC. ZZ Top, which came to the shell. Yes. This was about 1972 or thereabouts. Um, and and so I did. And I was working on that 10-foot puppet backstage 10 minutes before showtime. I was still you know, trying to get the It's like the Worldwide right. Texas Tour, if I think, where they had the vultures and the the weird shit that went on. No, that came a little later. A little bit later on. They did their own sort of rodeo circus thing. Yes, yes, yes. That was about 74 when they did that. I think they called it the something other Wild West or something. They had yeah. uh, almost a combination of rodeo 
and music. And so what did you make? I made a 10-foot, essentially, space character that I called the Abba Vulcan. Had a big, <laughs> like an alien type big, of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, he would bend at the waist and his head could turn. I was inside him, you know. Oh, you were in him, yeah. Yeah, yeah doing on rollers. He would roll out. And you had rods and, and uh, all the little rods parts. and arms. Yeah. And uh, I, we had to cut a hole in the about right here, the, right there in the solar middle. plexus, and, and make a medallion with the kind of gauze-like material, and that's what I could look out. Oh, you could to, see where you were. See, yeah. To see. And Randall Lyon held the microphone up to the creature's mouth when I'm talking out of <laughs> little hole in its <laughs> chest. But uh, that was a fun, fun show. <laughs> it sounds like it, yes. Um, and I don't know that we ever used the ob in, in any mud boy things. Uh, and now that I think about it, I'm wondering why we didn't, but we didn't. Well, mud boy was sort of sedate. Would that be correct? Uh, well, we would wear costumes in the beginning. You I'd did, yeah. Up. Yeah. And then we kind of let that slide, too. Because we opened, we started on a Halloween. Um, so what Halloween. kind of costumes were you guys wearing? Uh, Sid, at the time, was still teaching anthropology at uh, Rhodes College. Or it was called Southwestern at the time. And uh, <laughs> so he painted his face to look kind of like a baboon. You know, that red and yes, blue and yes. whatever. Uh, in fact, Sid got his master's degree by um, studying truckers and their hand signals. Uh, and, and he made a thesis on uh, sign language, you know, done. Highway sign language, yes. Yeah. And later at Rhodes, he was teamed up with the zoo, and he was trying to teach orangutans how to sign. Shut <laughs> up! Shut <laughs> up! Oh my god! <laughs> there's there's oh, yeah. this running gag in uh, in Indonesia about orangutans. They said the reason why they don't talk is because they'd have to pay taxes. You know, they're they're just just that smart. They're the yeah. gentlemen of the jungle, and yeah. I can I can I can see that now. Well. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to give them sign language because... Just you know. lately, they showed an orangutan driving a little... Uh, golf cart. Golf cart. Yes, I saw that. Somewhere yeah. in Florida, you know, with its arm up on the... You know, he's hanging know. out there just driving along. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was dressed as, a, as, a, as an ape of some sort. Well, kind of a baboon, yeah. And uh, I was the clown at midnight. Of course. <laughs> which is, the clown. You know, yeah. Did you have like the red nose and the white face and the and the the the, the red the red cheeks and that well, kind of stuff? Well, I didn't. No, do, that I would didn't. Be too. Do, I just painted tears with acrylic paint under my eyes. I got gotcha. you. And kind of kept my face. Uh, so, cause grease paint and whatever, you just get too hot. Oh God! It and, didn't breathe. I mean, yeah. Sid was just. I don't know how he did it. He was full of grease paint. And Dickinson looked like Sabad or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if y'all remember. I do. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Watson Davis. 
you know, uh, I was thinking of Dewey Phillips and uh, his uh, sidekick, Harry, that was wore a gorilla mask. Yeah. Harry oh, yeah. was an artist, uh, studied at the College of Art. Which one of you guys was the one who put on a scuba suit and lay in the bottom of his pool and write music? That was Sid. That was Sid. Yeah, that's where he wrote. Um, he would just disappear Outlaw. from everybody. Huh? He would disappear from everybody and go well, lay in the pool. His next door neighbor had a swimming pool and the <laughs> scuba equipment, and he could go down. And he wouldn't. I first thought he's down there writing with some kind of wax pencil on a slate or something but it was just on his head have the thoughts and then come up and actually actually physically write it down yeah but he did frank tucker's tune which is the story essentially of a guy trying to smuggle a little pot from jamaica to you know america and he gets shot in the head in jamaica which is a true story yes it was his friend frank tucker and then Outlaw, which is, uh, there's a smile on her face for the Outlaw. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a list of stuff here that you sent us that is very rare, quite frankly. Um, the, uh, the stuff from uh, the, uh, the uh, Jim Dickinson Memorial Folk Fest. Yeah. Um, uh, we have the uh, the sweat fest from 2015. Some of that stuff. Is there is there anything you want to you know, let's let's play a tune. Let's, uh, let's okay. Yeah. Um, Sounds good. Which one of these would you like? Oh, it's your show. Your pick. Oh, this is your time, <laughs> there, Jimmy. I mean, <laughs> not really. I mean, we played Cody. We didn't play that one. Um, um, tell me about the whiskey shoot smugglers. Toodle do. Oh, Whiskey Shoot Smugglers was uh, Greg Fairs and his wife, Marty, and uh, Baird Calicut, right. who is Burton Calicut's son, right. and myself. And it's kind of uh, your old-timey, you know, almost Appalachian sort of... Very uh, folky stuff, yeah. 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 Do you have any of that? I have uh, Toodle Do. Well, do that. That's a fun song. It's a fun song. And my Didito, um, I know there's something there. Uh, you've the the song you've grown. Toodaloo is. Yeah, and I, that, yeah, I've got that cute up, but I also have. I'm looking. I'm looking down the way too. Uh, my Didito, Nadito. I'm not sure. A song called "You've Grown." Well, maybe. not ringing a bell, huh? That's, uh, that's, that's quite all right. I'd like to hear Mr. Crump don't like it. I'm I was just looking at that. Yeah. Well. Sweatfest 2015. Toodle Do is a fun song. Yeah, I'm about to play it here in just a moment. And um, the tune that uh, Ben Baker, Luke White, and yourself did, <laughs> Mr. Crump don't like it, which yeah. is the which was the campaign song. I think that. Um, that Crump ran back in the, was it 31, 32, when he ran for mayor, like for the 19,000th well, time? Well, you know uh, what prompted him to clean up Beale Street, essentially, yes. was the Millington Naval Base. Uh, that's in uh, David Less's book, Memphis Mayhem. He, yes. He goes into the 
the reasons why Beale Street had to be cleaned up. The Navy said they didn't want their sailors to, you know, come get uh, corrupted. Built, if you will, corrupted. Yeah, by the the uh, well, the ladies and the, the gambling yes. there on yes. Beale. So clean it up, or there ain't going to be no base in Millington. <laughs> is essentially it. Uh, from so my understanding, Mr. though, Trump didn't allow it. Yeah, that was, and that was sort of like a checklist of things. Uh, Mr. Crump don't allow this, that, or the other. Uh, uh, Mr. Handy, I think, was part of that tune. I think originally, and it was, it it became sort of a, a of a call to, like you said, to clean up the city. But at the same time, it was like, wow, Memphis has all this. So <laughs> it, you know, hey, we're coming here to have some some real fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you read Les's book, Memphis Mayhem? Mm-mm, no. Well, there's one great story. Let me say this. Oh, absolutely. Either yeah, you play tell. the music and we can come back to that Oh, no, story no, go ahead and tell it, yeah. All right. Um, there was a character named Bill Laura, uh, and he had a store... And then he built a saloon next to his store, and it was on Dunlap near Poplar, mm-hmm. about where Labonner Children's Hospital okay. is now, yeah. which is where my wife, Ula, works. Anyway, uh, Bill went to one of the uh, black-owned saloons on Beale, and uh, they gave him a free beer. Then they gave him another free beer. Now, Bill Laura was white. Mm-hmm. They they gave him a third, and then they refused to give him a fourth. And so he got mad, and he went home and got his pistol, told some friend there, I'm going to turn that place into a funeral parlor. So he comes back, goes into the pool table part in the back and shoots four black men dead and wounds a couple What? All over a glass of beer. Well, anyway, (laughs) uh, he was arrested and kept in jail almost two years before his trial. Mm -hmm. But when he had his trial, they acquitted him on grounds of insanity. In other words, he okay. was innocent by by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, the commercial appeal or whatever it was called at that time referred to him as Wild Bill Laura. And he didn't like that name, so he called up the paper saying, if y'all keep calling me Wild Bill Laura, I'm going to come down there and shoot your Oh, my God. Show you how fucking wild I am. Uh Well, he was, you know, I think they were perhaps accurate with, you know, he was insane, but whether he should have been acquitted or not is something else. But anyway, he still was making trouble. And at another point, uh, the cops come. He's got some commotion happening outside his saloon. And uh, they've got their guns drawn on him, and he reaches in his coat, and they shoot him dead. Oh, Um, okay. And I guess he did have a gun, but we don't know whether he was going to be pulling it out or not. They didn't. Well, that ended that. Yeah, Yeah, they weren't going to chance it. So that was the end of Wild Bill Laura. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I think that would have been in the 30s. That's a, 
that's about right. Yeah, that sounds about right when that would have happened. And he died yeah. on the street right in front of Labonner. <laughs> <laughs> Before wow, Labonner. I used to work there. I never knew that story. Uh, then we'll pause here and um, <laughs> uh, let me get this little newscast in here. We'll play a little break and we'll come back and um, we'll hear uh, Whiskey Shoot Smugglers with uh, Toodledoo. Okay. We'll play that, and then we'll do the uh, Ben Baker with uh, Luke White and and uh, Jimmy Crosswaite, who's here in the studio with Mr. Crump. Don't like it, and I think I may even have W.C. Handers, Mr. Crump, to kind of compare it to go with it. So there is that.
to be my man You got to give me forty dollars down Wanna be my man You gotta forgive me forty dollars down Don't be my man Your baby's gonna leave this town Well, Mr. Crump don't allow no easy rides, yeah Mr. Crump don't allow no easy riders yeah We don't care what Mr. Crump don't allow We go to Bellhouse anyhow Mr. Crump won't allow it Ain't gonna have it there you go. That's WC Handy at Radio Memphis there with Mr. Crump. Ahead of that, it was uh, Ben Baker, Luke White, and uh, Jimmy Crossway with Mr. Crump Don't Like It No More. And, uh, of course, uh, Whiskey Shoot, Smugglers, and Toodaloo. Jimmy's here in the studio. Thank you so much for you know, for coming down. We well, appreciate having you here. it's truly my pleasure, and uh, I enjoy sharing some of these stories about some of these people I've had the good fortune of, of knowing. You know, I think a series of podcasts would be really groovy with yeah. you. <laughs> well, uh, I think like six or eight hours of them would material be. To, oh, come to, on, Jimmy. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I, I remember you telling me, I think it was one of the last times you were down here, about the story about how Mud Boy and the Neutrons got the name. Yeah. And you guys were playing a show somewhere, and you, you hadn't been named yet? No, no, we didn't even have the group formed yet. Uh, Dickinson had been working with Ry Cooter. They toured the world pretty much. And uh, yeah. then uh, Ry Cooter was asked by his manager or someone's manager if um, he would uh, be the opening band for um, gosh who is it uh, I'm having a senior moment now well I didn't mean to throw it at you there well, dear Jimmy so um, gosh who's the most well I'm sorry I'm just oh, really no, no, drawing no, no, a blank no. the point is that Cooter just said I don't want to open for some damn mud boy in the neutrons and uh, that was just sort <laughs> of a, a, stuck. A, a derogatory name he came up with on the spur of the moment um, <laughs> but, it's, and, but it's a beautiful and, story and, yeah and so Dickinson told me and I said I think that's a great name and he said well let's let's do that let's be mud boy in the neutrons he had been ready to kind of put a group together and it just stopped. and the and the photograph for the for the first record is an actual mud boy. Yeah, that John you... McIntyre took some Mississippi mud and made. Oh, it wasn't sculpture. you that did that? It was John that did it. Uh, John did the first one, and it deteriorated. <laughs> and by the time it was, to, we were going to make an album. I made the other one. I made the one that's on the album cover. And it's just John mud McIntyre with straw made, and yeah, stones and hair for. Uh, straw for hair and beer caps for eyes and whatnot. <laughs> Little stubby arms. John's didn't have much arms. John's looked a little more like the tar baby. <laughs> yes. And I have in my mind the photograph from that album and yeah. it's this brown thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's very stark. Yeah. It's we also put a little dry ice in the mud puddle that we had him sitting in to give it a little bit of a, a little misty, uh, foggy yeah, type of little, thing. Like he's <laughs> rising from the, the river. 
Sid used to say, you know, when we played, if we did it right, the spirit of the mud boy would rise up out of the Mississippi River. Whatever. I mean, I mean, music aside, you know, you had the visual concept, you had everything that went with it. This is what every every rock and roll act desired, and you guys just kind of. You know, pardon the expression, you guys just kind of fell into it. Oh, yeah. And it's and, so perfect. It goes and, back to what you were saying about you guys being kids, you know, put, <laughs> g- swimming in the mud, you know, when the boat goes Laying there by. like the mud babies yeah. and the, the fish and everything that went with it. It was just such a perfect moment. And, well, you know, we didn't really uh, want to succeed in the... In the sense of um, economic or whatever success, you didn't. That you did require, not want to succeed. No, nobody wanted to travel or whatever. The furthest Mud Boy ever went was Fayetteville, Arkansas, and. Uh, but your uh, records, they, they tell a different story. Yeah. Well, but in terms of, we would play very rarely. You know, we would play maybe six times a year, uh, and. Uh, no tours. No. Yeah, no tours. No. Everybody kind of had something else to do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for a while, Sid was still teaching at uh, Southwestern in the yeah. beginning. And uh, then he kind of pursued his own career. Uh, and I played actually more with Sid, just Sid and I, than. Uh, with the whole group of Mudboy and the Neutrons. And in fact, Sid, uh, we played two nights a week at the Procope uh-huh. Gardens. I remember the Procope. where the, the barbecue shop is now. Uh, and then Jefferson Square, which was yes. downtown. And uh, I wanted to tell you a story about Henry Turley. Mm-hmm. I first met Henry at about the same time Sid and I and Furry a bit were playing at uh, Jefferson Square. Henry would come in there a lot because Henry lived. In fact, he managed the Lowenstein Towers. Yes. And, you know, after the sanitation strike in Memphis, Lowenstein's moved away from downtown. And Percy Galbraith bought that uh, building and turned it into the Lowenstein Towers, which Henry Turley managed. So sometimes we would go, or I would go, from Jefferson Square up to Henry's apartment, you know, after hours or whatever. And Henry has got a really wonderful sense of humor. uh, I've met Henry a and, numerous and times, and yes, he does. He Over the years, he has been a good patron buying my artwork. And in fact, one piece I made, I called a Clarabus. I took a steel clarinet, and then I took a 2x4 and channeled out part of it and made a gun stock so that in the oh. end... I had a steel clarinet that looked like a blunderbuss. Yes. So I called it the clarabuss. Because the bell of the clarinet. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the trigger was a nail, and the trigger guard was a drawer pull. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, I took a picture uh, out on the Calicut property on Stage Road. I'm in front of the, the property. I'm wearing a bandana 
and I've got the gun, the Clarabus slung between my arms, and um, a Butch Main took a picture of that. I had a exhibit at Rhodes College where I exhibited the Clarabus and the picture of me holding it. Henry bought both of those, and he put the picture of me holding the Clarabus on the wall behind his desk in his office downtown. <laughs> <laughs> well, he oh, could say, beautiful. I'm the bark, he's the bite. <laughs> Here, sign this deal. Yeah, yes. really. yeah. <laughs> Either your signature or your brains will be on that. Um, <laughs> I know so anyway, yes, yeah. along those same almost... Uh, um, soprano-like <laughs> lines. Henry told me a, a great story once, not too long ago, about the Butcher Brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with Jake and C.H. Butcher. I've heard but the names. They were like somewhere between uh, bankers and fraud merchants or whatever. They were real estate. <laughs> they, they, were, they were going to develop Mud Island. And yes. They also got Harold Ford Sr. Uh -huh. to do the fancy government work to get funding, federal funding, to build that bridge to Mud Island. Nothing could be done which Mud Island used to be the Auction bridge. Street Bridge, that uh, the A.W. Willis Bridge now? Right at the end of 2nd and yeah. whatever. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, Harold Ford got federal funds to do that bridge. Yes. But just as it's finished, the butchers get caught in whatever illegal scheme they're doing. <laughs> and C.H. Butcher, uh, Jake's brother, is uh, in prison. And Henry tells me a story. He said, and one day, the warden of the prison calls C.H. and says, C.H., listen, you got to get back here. There's going to be an inspection tomorrow. And, they, you know, and C.H. says, well, I'll tell you, warden, the fish are really biting over here. Why don't you get so-and-so to be in my cell? They'll never know the difference. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was your good old boys. I don't uh, know the prison. I don't know the warden, and I don't want to be killed because I told this story. But uh, I think enough story. water has flown under that bridge to not worry safe. about that. Yeah. So long and short, you know, uh, the butchers couldn't develop Mud Island, but Henry and uh, uh, I believe the Bells did. Yes. You know, yes. And they could do that because the bridge got built because. The Butchers and Harold Ford Sr. were able to, <laughs> to pull it all off. That's and funny. Henry the, becomes the beneficiary of the... It's the, the Memphis way, way, my friend. And uh, I know we're getting short on time, well, but you're fine. I'd no, love you're, to tell you one more story please. that I consider maybe the most poignant Christmas tale I've ever heard. Yes. Uh, Keith Kennedy was director of theater at Memphis State for many, many years. And uh, Memphis State is, of course, the University of Memphis now. <clears throat> In 1970, uh, they put on the first uh, production of Hair outside of New York. And I would have lunch with Keith every day 
or once a week for about 10 years. We started meeting for lunch at Patrick's when it was over there yes. off of Southern near Wolverine, Sonoma. Yes. And then we moved kind of to the half shell. And each Thursday, well, it changed sometimes, but for a year or two, it would be the same day, same time, we'd have lunch. And this went on for, as I said, almost 10 years. And then about six months before Keith died, he turned to me once and said, Jimmy, did I ever tell you about how I found my father? And I said, no, Keith, you never did. He said, well, you know, I was born in La Mesa, Texas. And when I was born, my father was already gone. I guess he didn't really want the responsibility of a child. And I was raised essentially by my mother and my aunt. Mm -hmm. And um, I always wanted to, to meet my father. I had his name, Kennedy. And uh, my mama remarried when I was about 12. She married a guy who was in the military. I didn't like him. I don't think he liked me. And I wanted to get away from home as soon as I possibly could. So he lied about his age and joined the Air Force when he was probably 17. And uh, spent his four years in the Air Force. Then he comes back and he starts working uh, at a funeral home in La Mesa run by a man named Higginbotham, the Higginbotham Funeral Home. Mostly Keith's just driving an ambulance and stuff, but old Mr. Higginbotham thinks that Keith's a little rough around the edges and he might do with some some uh, uh, Dale Carnegie course. So he enrolls him in a Dale Carnegie course oh my God. so he can get confidence and win friends and influence people. The Napoleon know. Hill stuff. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, so Keith does it. And towards the end of this course, uh, they have a um, project they have to do, and that's to speak publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, and they tell him the, they want you to speak about something that is near and dear to your heart. So it's a 4-H meeting or wherever Keith's speaking in, in front of this group. And he tells the story of he had never known his father and uh, that he would sure love to meet him someday. And at the end of his speech, and as the crowd was about walking away, one man comes up to Keith and says, I know where your daddy is. Oh, my. And Keith says, oh. And he says, yeah. He's in Abilene. And here's his address. So it's getting towards Christmas, and Keith gets some days off from the funeral home, and it's a long drive from La Mesa to uh, Abilene. Yes, it is. I mean, anywhere from Texas is Texas huge. To, <laughs> anywhere in Texas to anywhere else in Texas is like, you know, four states or something. But anyway, Keith makes the drive, gets to the address. He's looking in the window of a house that looks empty. In fact, there's no furniture in it. It's just an empty house. And he thinks, oh, damn. But he, 
he calls, and it's, it's at this time, it's about 1951, 52, maybe 1953. I'm kind of vague on that. Keith was born in about 1930, so I figure by the time he does four years, being 17, it's 51 or 52. And he calls from a phone booth, and of course he's talking to an operator that's got, you know, little wires and plugs and mm. whatever. She's a regular old school. The hand operator. switch thing, yes. Yeah, right. Yes. Like your uh, Capital Two Six General. So uh, anyway, he tells the operator that he was given an address and that that's where he was told his father lived, but no one was there, and it doesn't look like anyone's living there. And she says, boy, you wait right where you are. If your daddy's in this town, I'm going to find him for you this Christmas Eve. And we're, you know, and so he stands by the phone, gets the call, and she gives him another address. I don't know where she got it. Maybe they're like gas and water or however she did it. She did it. So he goes to that address. There's no cars, no lights. He's looking in there. There's furniture, but nobody's home. So he's thinking, well, I guess I'm going to be driving back to La Mesa. And he's walking back to his car. When a car pulls up, some kids pile out. Then the man gets out, looks at Keith. Keith looks at him. They move towards each other. And probably when they're 25 feet from each other, they recognize each one to be who they are. The man invites Keith to come in, meet his uh, stepbrothers and sisters, and has Christmas with them for the first time. Oh, wow. Isn't that a wonderful story? Yes. Wow. Wow. I cry almost every time I tell that. A lot of things uh, had to come into play for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I love the idea, and, and his imitation of that that uh, operator was really wonderful. Uh, and Keith, like I said, he was the first person, or the first uh, production uh, of uh, hair to happen outside of New York. And the production they did at Memphis State in 1970, everyone was clothed. And uh, Oh, they didn't go naked, did they? No, no, they didn't. They did in New York, but not in Memphis. Oh, God, you know? no. <laughs> uh, and, of course, when it, when word came that, you know, hair was coming to Memphis, there was a lot of hoopla from the pulpits and whatever. Oh, you know? sure. But yeah. Keith just considered it good publicity. He also told me once, he said, <clears throat> you know how I did that? I said, how? He said, I went up to New York, and I just uh, made an appointment to go see Jerry Ragney as the guy that wrote hair. And he said, I went in there to his offices, and I said, you know, this director in New York that did the production of hair, I don't think he quite knew what you had in mind. <laughs> and Ragney went, Oh, pray, what do I have in mind? Or did I have in mind? <laughs> what did I have in mind? <laughs> so that's kind of how 
Keith snagged him and said, let's, let, let us do it down in Memphis, whatever. And Jerry Ragney came to Memphis. I remember meeting him with Keith and them while they were rehearsing. And uh, I don't know. Keith was, was a really great friend, and I really miss him an awful lot. Um, we got any sad music? You can- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, would have been a good time for it. <laughs> this is when I would have played Randy Park singing Satan's Jewel Crown or some kind. I mean, of- I- maybe we need to play into the dark end of the street right now. <laughs> oh yeah, dark end would be about right. Yeah. Now, you know, Dark End was written by Dan Penn. And there's another great story of Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham, who were writing buddies. And they wrote uh, the letter that Alex Chilton made famous with the box tops. But a little later, Chilton needed another hit song. And so uh, Dan Penn and and Spooner were working uh, towards another song for Alex and they had a studio booked on Saturday to have musicians come in and play it but they stayed up two nights and came up with nothing and it's Saturday morning they're just beat to hell this is all described in Robert Gordon's book It Came From Memphis and um, they go to this little uh, restaurant across the street from the studio to get some breakfast. And uh, Spooners just puts his head on the table and says, God, I could just cry like a baby. And Dan Penn says, what'd you say? And he said, I could just cry like a baby. And Dan said, that's it. And Spooner says, it is. And they said somewhere between the table and the cash register, they had the first verse written. (laughs) Walking across the street, by the time they're in the studio, after an hour, they had the whole song. So that Alex and them come in about nine in the morning and they hand it to them. And uh, Alex is shaking Dan Penn's hand saying, God, that's great. Well, I have... Uh, Dark End of the Street queued up. Oh, oh good. Yeah, yeah I want to play it. And, uh, Perfect. Dan Ben, Dark End of the Street. And uh, this would be a, you know appropriate time to turn you loose into the nighttime, my friend. Okay, I'm ready uh, you to. Know. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much. It's been my it's, pleasure. You know, you're oh, yeah. you're. It's been our pleasure. Bored y'all? No, no. Not at all. So. A book from you, perhaps? <laughs> yes. You know, you quoted from a couple of books tonight. You know, I, you know, yeah, have you thought well, about... Maybe we can make it an audio book. <laughs> we can do that. We can sit here and, uh, you know, put a mic in front of you and just let you talk. Yeah, and put you know. a few of these together. Yeah. If at the very least, if we if we just sat down and, and chatted, yeah, we've lost that conversation thing, I think, yeah. with social media. And, yeah. And you gave us a taste of what that's really like, and and I appreciate you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a fan of yours. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are fans of what you what you have done in your career. And uh, have you got anything coming up? Are you are you showing so many pieces anywhere? Or oh yeah, I had a show uh, at 
the Playhouse on the Square. It accompanied their production of Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. It had these kind of creepy wallflowers and Zen chimes that had flowers and things. And I also was in uh, uh, a Christmas show called Winter Arts that yes. uh, is uh, crafts and, and stuff that is put on by Gary Bells, Greg mm -hmm. Bells, I mean. Um, and that was out in Germantown. So I sold a few pieces up around Christmas. And um, Anything coming up in the spring? There may be another spring show that Greg will do. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm reminded <laughs> of a, a character, Lily Tomlin, did a bag lady uh, character once where she's pushing her little grocery cart out full of rags and whatever, and the character that she's playing says, you know, I always wanted to be somebody, and now I realize I should have been more specific. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> a great line. There you go. <laughs> it really is. Jimmy, is it heading up with Sons of Mudboy in the future? Uh, if the, by the way, Steve Salvage, his wife Joanne, and their children all have COVID right oh, now. No. Oh, oh no! But apparently, it's the well, uh, it's a thing. It's the Omicron, and it's not very bad. He said. Right. And I talked to him this very day yeah. to learn that. Yeah, vaccinated and boosted, you're you're pretty good. Uh, and there's they're this young. I mean, they're forty something, but compared to me, they're young. I'm wearing my mask. Well, we did I'm the same as well. I know that. Uh, I feel like I have a target on my back. Well, and being uh, you know immunosuppressant is a, is a thing, and yeah. you know we we didn't want you to you know uh, you know ever feel like you're going to be sick. So we didn't, you know we had it when Mark I told me he said you know hey you know you guys wear a mask. I'm like yeah no problem. But anyway, in answer to your question, yeah, if this damn pandemic will ever go away, I mean we could do outdoor things. We could play the shell or something maybe, but. Uh, we had a gig lined up at DKDC on the 23rd, just oh, last oh Sunday, and yeah. uh, we blew it off, you know. And that's a, that's a cool spot for you guys. I know... Uh, well, it's tiny, but it is. Uh, we like Karen, and she likes us. Oh, she loves you guys. It is really intimate. And, and now uh, she's using that back parking lot as a place to play outside. Yeah, and, I think she's maybe got some to deal with some sort of neighbors and sound problems. Well, they're complaining about good music, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know there's history happening here? Yeah, Shut really. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Jimmy, thank you so very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's a thrill to have you around, and uh, you know, when things get better, when things get safer, I'd love to have Sons of Mud Boy down here. Okay. You know, oh yeah. You know, to 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 play in our space over here, and let's just, you know, let's sing songs and do some things and. And uh, let's create some art. Bring okay. a puppet. I would love to see one of your puppets in action. Well, <laughs> that's for I, I got my back blown doing the puppets, you know, so I don't do them anymore. Oh no. Yeah. Do you still have them around? Oh yeah, I've got an attic full of them. I'm going to give the ten foot puppet to the shell. Are you, you know, really? Yeah. They're going to have a, they've got a kind of museum they're putting together yeah. of photos of people who've played there and 
uh, it'll be open to the public almost like, uh, you know, you can go to Sun Records and you can go to backstage. Oh, cool. Nice sale. little museum there, yeah. So I'm going to give him a 10-foot puppet. He's not doing anything in my attic. <laughs> He's yeah. just hanging out collecting yeah. dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll get him get, out there. Get him out before the squirrels eat him. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have none of that. Well, on our way out the door, Jimmy, I'm going to play Dark End of the Street. Oh, great. Yay. My boy in the neutrons. Thank you, Jimmy, Thank so very you. much. Anytime you want to come and just you know spend some time and you know talk for a bit, you have a space right here. Okay, thank you. Take you bet. Care. Thank you, Jimmy. There he is, uh, Jimmy Crossway, ladies and gentlemen, and here he is with Mud Boy and the Neutrons in the dark end of the street, right here, right in Memphis. We'll be back in just a bit. Mark Caldwell has the latest from the uh, Memphis Blues Society, so don't go away.
see you, but just reach out. Reach out like you know something has happened. Put your hand on the radio. Let me know if you can feel it. It's the tick-tock of time, baby. It's the big countdown, and we're all in it together. Nobody gets out alive. Now we just rocked the boat, friends and neighbors. And we put the bad boys out, and we put the good boys in. Let's see what's going to happen. This here song, I don't know whether or not you may or may not be familiar with this song, was written by Dan Penn and Chip's Moment. One lonesome night, filled up in a hotel in Nashville. And they wrote it as a country song, and it's been recorded as a country song. It's been recorded as an R&B song. It's been recorded as a gospel song. It has been sung by men to women, women to men, men to men, and women to women. And I thought about this song a long time before I figured out what it meant. This song is not about sex. This song is about politics. Because there's one place, baby, where we're all the same. If they tell us what to do, pretty soon they're going to tell us what not to do. And you're going to have to slip around. You're going to have to steal around. You're going to have to do stuff where nobody can see. The proceeding was produced by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated and originally aired live on Radio Memphis. Any offers or advertisement contained may not still be valid. All rights are reserved and copyright is held by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated, Memphis, Tennessee. For more, look for all the RMOD players at radio-memphis.com. <laughs>